Uh, today, we'll hear from uh, Terry Hazen of the Earth Sciences Division, who is a leading authority on bioremediation, uh, which uses biological processes to clean up toxic and non-toxic compounds. A little bit of background on him. He uh, received his under undergraduate and uh, master's degrees in interdepartmental biology from Michigan State University, and his PhD is from Wake Forest University in microbial ecology. In 1998, Terry joined the lab's Earth Sciences Division as head of the ecology department and lead scientist for the Environmental Remediation Technology Program. And in 1999, he was appointed as head of the uh, Center for Environmental Biotechnology. Later, in 2002, he founded and became co-director of the Virtual Institute for Microbial Stress, Stress and Survival. And in 2006, he was named a DOE Biological and Environmental Research Distinguished Scientist and one of the only remediation scientists uh, involved in that honor. He also recently, on a, on a separate track, and a very interesting track, he also recently organized a conference held at Berkeley Lab that was attended by 55 state and federal judges. And the conference was designed to give the judges an orientation to the emerging fields of uh, nanotechnology and synthetic biology and biotechnology and, and enhance their ability to preside over increasingly complex cases. So that's kind of an emerging trend. They have to handle very complex cases and they have to get sort of up to speed on scientific terms. Today he will discuss when it's best to resort to engineered bioremediation of contaminated sites and when it's best <clears throat> to rely on natural attenuation. Uh, recent advances in systems biology and synthetic biology have greatly broadened the potential applications for bioremediation. Um, however, at the same time, scientists' knowledge of uh, various biogeochemical processes have advanced to such an extent that they can better gauge how quickly uh, contaminants can attenuate or be cleaned up on their own. So there's kind of a give and take. Uh, after his lecture, as usual, we'll have uh, time for questions from the audience. Uh, please wait for a microphone, and we'll get you a microphone as quickly as possible because we are taping this. And uh, please join me in welcoming Terry. <clears throat> Thanks a lot. Great turnout today. Um, what I'd like to do is, is talk to you not only about... Um, potentially what environmental biotechnology can do to help us, but in what you don't hear quite often is things that happen that suggest we could do it better or we may have done it wrong. So um, let me give you some of those examples and um, some actual case studies. First of all, the problem. 73 million U.S. citizens live within four miles of a Superfund site. This is our worst toxic waste sites, okay? And um, these are the ones that are going to require immediate cleanup. They have multiple risk factors associated with them, et cetera. Um, in fact, four million U.S. citizens live within one mile of a Superfund site, and we actually have several Superfund sites in the Bay Area here. The sources for these contaminations um, are a myriad. And in fact, you can see um, in this cartoon basically gas tanks, uh, leachate from landfills, refuge, um, sludge applications, uh, desiccation, which allows material to get into the subsurface and in direct injection. 
um, seepage basins, tanks leaking, sewer lines, and of course this includes things like chlorinated solvents, oil, MTBE, this oxidizing agent that we find in, in gasoline. Um, <clears throat> and then of course a lot of the radionuclides that are involved in DOE sites and uh, even plutonium and things like this that are found at some of the sites. The cost, and this is probably a low estimate, is going to cost us at least $1.7 trillion, and that number seems to be going upwards. Especially now as we're finding that concentrations of some chemicals, even areas that we've cleaned up, um, can basically affect endocrine systems at parts per trillion concentrations. So they're endocrine disruptors. Um, they can cause um, children to have sexual characteristics when they're only um, two years old, three years old. Um, they're contaminating milk, water, etc. And there's a, a lot of potential for this to be the next um, environmental nightmare. Okay, let's look at a couple of really dramatic cases that actually helped galvanize environmental um, legislation. One of those was the Moco Cadiz spill, okay? And this was 227,000 tons of heavy crude that was spilled off the Normandy coast about uh, 29 years ago. Um, the spill was so large that they decided they will only treat the areas that were heavily impacted. And large areas in remote parts of the coast were basically abandoned. The best available treatment at the time was detergents and dispersants. And so they added that to the coastlines. Now, the spill was actually the impetus for a variety of international cleanup and tanker regulations, going to double-hauled tanks and things like this. So that was a good thing. However, ecological studies done 10 and 20 years post-spill have now demonstrated to us that the treated areas have not yet recovered, okay? And it's been almost 30 years. Yet the untreated areas recovered in less than five years, okay? So in a do-no-harm scenario, we messed it up, okay? In fact, some of the detergents and things that we used were more toxic than if we had just left it alone, okay? So that's a point I'm gonna keep coming back to, um, and there's certainly things that we need to understand and need to do basic research to understand all the implications of some of the things that we're gonna be doing. The other big one um, that everybody remembers, you may not remember the Moco Cadiz, but I bet you almost all of you remember the Exxon Valdez spill, okay? And this was in Prince William Sound in Alaska. Um, 11 million gallons of crude, and it was the largest spill in U.S. history up to that time. They used burning, mechanical, dispersants, and bioremediation. We had now advanced after 10 years so that we started thinking about bioremediation or biological processes. Um, to date, Exxon has spent more than $7 billion on this spill and litigation is still going on. It's been more than 18 years. Because of this, Congress passed the 1980 Oil Pollution Act. Um, we actually went into some areas and fertilized those. They looked dramatically cleaner after the first year. 
Statistically, we couldn't find a difference, okay? But uh, after the second winter, and there was enough um, wave activity and, and winter activity and things like that on the rocks and that sort of thing, we couldn't see any difference at all, okay, even visually. Long-term impact of this dispersants and the bioremediation sent this dispersants again were detergents. They quite often were high in phosphate compounds and phosphorus compounds, as were the bioremediation additions. They added phosphorus and nitrogen compounds, basically um, fertilizers. It's had a severe impact on really the ecology of the sound, and this probably will be, be in effect for many, many decades. So it took this normally oligotrophic, low nutrient environment, added lots of nutrients to it um, in the hopes of degrading the oil faster, which we probably did a little bit. But the long-term effect, because the phosphorus and that sort of thing was not lost from the system, was that we in fact upset the ecological balance there, and we basically eutrophied and have nuisance algae and a variety of other things. Okay, DOE's problem, okay? DOE, if you don't know, has 120 sites around the United States. We are one of the smallest sites, um, and we have basically three plumes at this site, site and we have spent more than $65 million in the cleanup um, or things leading to the cleanup of those plumes, okay? That's just this one little site alone. Um, Livermore has spent more than a billion dollars and they're not done yet. Um, Nevada set, test site, 20 billion dollars. So DOE has a tremendous interest here and these are just the smaller sites. Some of the big sites like Idaho and Hanford where we have a thousand square mile sites and plumes that are 20 square miles and more than a thousand feet underground are going to be some serious problems for us for a very long time. Hence DOE's extreme interest in potential cleanups of these sites. Now let me give you a detailed example of one site that is now technically closed according to the Environmental Management Program in DOE. Fernald, Ohio. Only a thousand um, acres. Um, it's near Cincinnati. They did uranium purification there. They produce with about 500 million pounds of uranium from as places like the Congo. Um, 31 million pounds of nuclear product was produced. 2.5 billion pounds of low-level radioactive and hazardous mixed waste. And 2.5 million cubic yards of contaminated soil and debris. Their motto is and was weapons to wetlands. And I always, it always struck me that that was sort of curious. Um, because what they were doing was digging up as far as they could or as far as the regulations made them and then leaving the holes open. So what do you know, they filled in with water and then there was ducks and geese. And, but there was still low levels of uranium at some of these sites, and clearly some of that could fly away, literally. Um, On-site disposal, about three million cubic yards. But they had three trains, each with 60 cars, operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week for five years, taking contaminated soil to EnviroCare, which is near Salt Lake City, and the Nevada test site. They were doing that for about five years. 
Now this is one of our smallest sites, okay? So it gives you an idea, I think, of some of the problems that we're faced with and how we really need some very serious um, look at the, the basic science that's needed to do these types of things, okay? So, the great hope. And, um, and I'm gonna dispel this a little bit as we go along. But uh, basically, bioremediation, which is simply trying to understand and monitor um, contaminated environments um, and control them for remediation with biological processes. The benefits of bioremediation, terminal destruction, complete degradation in the case of organics. We can do it on site. It's environmentally sound. It's cost effective. Man, if I was a used car salesman, you know, and this is what has made bioremediation so easy to sell, because we can say it's natural, okay? <laughs> well, there's some problems there, okay? So, bioremediation, everybody thinks, is brand new. And actually, the first time I can find it mentioned in the scientific literature at all, by doing a search of Web of Science, um, Scientific Citation Index, and searching abstracts, titles, and keywords, first time it's ever mentioned is 1987. That's why people think it's fairly new. In fact, um, and the reason they think it's, it's um, so great is there's no compound that we know of, man-made or natural, that microorganisms cannot degrade, okay? That's why it seems so cool. And actually, um, 20 years ago when I started working in this field, um, this sort of doctrine of infallibility was poo-pooed. Now I think most everybody accepts it. We, if we search long enough, we can find a bug that'll degrade any compound that we know of. In fact, microbial life on Earth is the dominant life on Earth, okay? We are not the dominant life on Earth. And in fact, it represents 60% of all the biomass on Earth at least. We actually think that we keep estimating this upwards. 60 to 100% more carbon than all plants combined. Nitrogen and phosphorus 10 times more than all plants at least 10 to the 5th or 10 to the 7th species, and that number keeps going up also. Bacteria are capable of four simultaneous mutations in every gene in less than an hour. They can divide in less than 20 minutes, okay? The human body itself, each one of you, contains more bacterial cells than you do human cells, okay? And in fact, you have about 5,000 to 10,000 species in your body right now, okay? So the argument might be is that you're basically a microbe that's living on a human, okay? <laughs> and in fact, um, microbial evolution on Earth, our best estimate, it's more than 3.7 billion years, okay? <clears throat> microbial growth capabilities. Now, Please notice, I'm going to tell you conditions where microbes can grow, not where they can survive. The conditions where they can survive are actually much larger than that, okay, or much greater. In fact, temperature, negative 12 degrees C. They can grow. 104 degrees C. They can grow at these temperatures, okay, even at 1,000 atmospheres. 
Um, redox potentials, negative 400 at a pH 8 to plus 850 at uh, pH 3. pHs, basically zero, okay? Um, thiobacillus. And we even found whole communities um, that have developed around these extremely low pHs. And we have found organisms that, that are growing um, at pHs greater than 13. Hydrostatic pressures from zero, literally, literally to 1,400 atmospheres and deep sea bacteria. Salinities from double distilled water to saturated brines, totally saturated. Um, just a little bit of water is all they need. Heavy metals from completely non-detect to more than 20,000 ppm, and we've now found um, bacteria in this, at the Savannah River site and the high-level waste tanks that can live at radiation levels that are absolutely staggering. In fact, they require radiation, okay? Because they're adapted to breaking down, things are ionizing so fast that, um, and their metabolism is so fast under those conditions. If you take them out of the radiation, they accumulate a lot of their cellular products too fast um, because they're not normally being broken down under, without the radiation and die. Um, gases don't have to have oxygen. They can live with CO2, nitrogen, methane, hydrogen sulfide, and hydrogen, okay? Now, some of you may have seen this. We had a paper in Science in October and we found a bug um, that we originally did a metagenome analysis. It turned out to be predominantly one organism. Um, it actually exists from our studies by using ionized material from background levels of uranium. So Ripley's didn't get it quite right, but it's cute. You know, there's a hole up here and it's looking down, that sort of thing. And I never saw a bacteria with eyes before. Um, <laughs> It's really life in the slow line because, because, because these organisms can live over many, many decades without getting too much in the way of nutrients or growing to a great extent, okay? But it shows the versatility that these organisms have. Um, this was 8,000 feet in South African gold mine. And you may have seen last week, we also, and this is me down at uh, the Homestake Mine in South Dakota at 8,000 feet. And in fact, uh, you may have seen that NSF just awarded Homestake the Dussel Deep Underground Science and Engineering Laboratory, which is linked also with our physicists here. And we hope to do some deep underground studies there also in that gold mine. Normal microbial requirements, okay? So I told you what the extremes are, but this is what is normal. Normally they need some water, if they're aerobic, it needs to be above 0.2 milligrams per liter. Anaerobic, less than 1% uh, saturation. Redox, greater than 50 for aerobes and facultative um, anaerobes or aerobes. Anaerobes, less than 50 millivolts. pH from 5.5 to 8.5. And they need a carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus ratio generally of 120, 10, and 1. Temperature-wise, 15 to 45 is, is normal. Uh, um, however, one gram of soil typically contains over a million to 10 mil billion microbial cells, representing 4,000 to 10,000 species in one gram of soil. So, if all these bugs are there, 
they have this wonderful capacity. There's all this contamination. Why haven't they eaten it up already? Okay. Um, and that's where the rub comes in. In fact, the contaminant itself can affect how fast things are biodegraded in terms of its molecular size, shape, charge, and, and functional groups concentration, solubility in water of the contaminant, lipid water um, partitioning coefficients, um, whether it's a solid, liquid, gas, volatilization, toxicity, and the possibility of st spontaneous non-enzymatic re reactions with the contaminant, okay? The environment itself, in terms of its mechanical accessibility, pH, oxygen, or other electron acceptors that we'll talk about in a minute, temperature, redox potential, presence of interfaces, ionic composition, water, wind speed, and a variety of other things, and even the presence of organisms or plasmids, which is usually not a problem, okay? The simplest way to explain this in terms of bioremediation is the contaminant um, with some sort of electron acceptor and the contaminant quite often acting as an electron donor, though sometimes it also acts as an electron acceptor. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, and then some fertilizer, some nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, okay? Right temperature, right pH, right microbe, we get carbon dioxide and water, okay? For all the organic contaminants, and as we'll talk about with the metals in a minute, we can also get them transformed by oxidizing or reducing them to different valence states where they're then less toxic or less mobile. So, the bugs are peculiar in that they can use a variety of terminal electron acceptors. So this is an oxidizing agent in cellular respiration. And of course the one we use is oxygen. However, they can also use nitrate, iron, sulfate, and CO2. And I'll talk more about that in a minute, but it is in this sequence, okay, normally, because of the energy that they can potentially get out of using these as oxidizing agents. Electron donors are reducing agents, and these are usually energy sources, usually carbon sources, sugars, things like that, okay? And we'll talk about that here in a minute. Now, it's critical to understand the, the biogeochemistry that's involved because quite often people don't do this and they misapply um, bioremediation for different types of applications. Basically with organics, and I'm sorry that didn't, it's not showing up real well, you can see oxygen here, and this is your basic aerobic respiration. This is the redox pair potential here that's, that, that's for, this, for oxygen itself. And you can see in the environment as that goes down and organics level go down, we then go to the next terminal electron acceptor, and that's nitrate. And so we have nitrate being depleted, and um, it's lower, so basically they're going to use oxygen first before they use nitrate in a denitrification process. Then iron, which is quite a bit lower than nitrate. So of course they're going to use these two first. We see iron two come up, so iron three goes to iron two. So in the environment, this is actually what we would see, okay? And so we can see these changes, and then we see hydrogen simultaneously being produced. Um, then sulfate reduction, and you see the sulfate go down, 
and we see hydrogen sulfide go up, okay? And um, until that's all depleted, once the sulfate's depleted, then they'll start using CO2. And so who cares? Um, basically, this goes to methane and methanogenesis. Well, if we're going to degrade certain types of contaminants, we have to be in a certain range of redox conditions, okay? The worst is the chlorinated solvents. If we're going to get halorespiration of PCE and TCE, we need to be in this low redox conditions and basically in methanogenic conditions. So if we have sulfate, iron-3, nitrate, oxygen, um, and especially if we have oxygen, we got a long ways to go to deplete all these before we're going to see any significant dehalorespiration occurring. Um, same way for the metals, though they don't have to go as low. For uranium and chromium, which we'll talk about more, we basically have to be in this range here. So we at least have to deplete oxygen and nitrate um, and basically get to iron-reducing conditions or sulfate-reducing conditions before we can see significant um, reduction of these metals from the toxic forms in the six-valent state down to four and three for uranium and, and um, chromium, respectively. Now, we thought bioremediation was new. However, fermentation might be construed as bioremediation because we're taking that nasty old sugar and making ethanol with it, okay? Um, and a lot of people like that, and that's certainly the second oldest profession, if not the first. Kitchen middens, compost piles, 6,000 BC. Greeks had walled refuse bioreactors as, as in 1900 BC. First wastewater treatment plant in Sussex, um, England, 1891. So Beldrent demonstrated oil biodegradation in 1946. By 1950, there were petroleum land farms all over California, okay? for remediating um, excess oil and waste oil from all of the petroleum stuff that, of course, we are quite familiar with. The bilge water of the Queen Mary, when it was brought into um, Long Beach down in, in uh, Southern California, was actually bio-augmented. We added petroleum-degrading bacteria to the water and then discharged it. So a lot of people think we haven't done any bio-augmentation bio or much of that, but we actually did that as early as 1968. Raymond had a patent, um, Dick Raymond and his son had a patent on in-situ biotreatment of gas bills in 1974, and he was actually using it much before that. The first patent on life was actually a petroleum degrader by Ananda Chakrabarte um, at GE. Now you scratch your head a little bit and say, what was GE interested in petroleum degrader for? Well, it's not for, for bioremediation, as it turned out. Um, Al and I are pretty good friends, and he's told me that the original um, reason that was funded was to actually produce protein for, for animals, okay, from petroleum, which is a little bit bizarre concept now. Um, but that was the original idea behind that. And so why did they go through all of these court test cases to get this original patent on life? Well, as it turned out, GE had this tremendous problem in the Hudson River with PCBs. And they were investing a lot of money in genetically engineering bacteria to degrade PCBs at their Schenectady lab um, 
in New York, and they didn't want to expose their intellectual property on that, so they basically decided to go with something that they knew wasn't really worth anything. Okay. French Limited Superfund site, um, Exxon Valdez spill we've talked about, SRS integrated demonstration we'll talk about more, GE Hudson Quezon demonstration for PCBs. This um, study in 1993 where they took some of their best bugs and put it in these giant caissons in the Hudson River, and they also added nutrients, as we'll talk about, showed them that the nutrients did just as well as their best bug did, okay? Hence, the Schenectady New York Laboratory was completely disbanded and all that research went away. Um, UT in Oak Ridge actually did lysimeter tests with a genetically modified organism in 1997 and 1999. Um, we also released, DOE also released at the oyster site some adhesionless strains. So what is bioremediation? There's a variety of different techniques, including liquids, where we use bioreactors at the surface. We can use infiltration galleries, bioventing. We'll show you some of that, examples of that. We can inject nutrients, microbes. Um, we can extract the water, vice versa with the gas. So we can bring the gas to the surface, treat it in a gas-phase bioreactor. We can excavate the soil and, and use biopiles. And we can do fire remediation, too. Intrinsic bioremediation. This is where we want to go. So in fact, if we know enough about the environment, we can do unmanipulated, unstimulated, unenhanced biological remediation of an environment and just monitor it and predict what's going to happen. So for example, um, lots of things be excreted by the plant in this little solar-powered nutrient pump here. Lots of bacteria and things like that down here. So we actually get quite a bit of biodegradation, especially of chlorinated solvents around the roots of plants and that sort of thing. And we've known about that for quite a while, okay? So there is a lot of potential for this type of work. Land farming is the simplest thing. And basically, we have set up facilities where we take oil-contaminated soil, spread it out, um, rototill it, and add some fertilizer. We can also just directly inject gas underground, um, basically just air or apply a vacuum and draw some air through the ground and, and get biodegradation. This shows degradation rates in total petroleum hydrocarbons per kilogram soil per day, okay? So these are pretty fast rates. And obviously we're getting almost an order of magnitude better with a prepared bed because we can control that environment a lot better rather than doing the in situ sorts of injections, okay? This is the actual soils facility that we built at the Savannah River site and operated for several years, um, destroying um, thousands of uh, cubic yards, well, if not hundreds of thousands of cubic yards of contaminated soil, and actually then being able to use it. Um, in, soon after the Poland was, um, let, was no longer part of the Soviet bloc, um, DOE asked me to go over to Poland and do a demonstration at a petroleum refinery. As it turns out, this was actually set up by um, Vacuum Oil Company, which was originally a, a standard oil company. So it, it, we are somewhat responsible for that. 
And we went in there, and, and I basically first said, well, you know, we know how to degrade petroleum. It's like, what do you need me for? Well, we, want, we know that, but we want to make sure it works. Fine. So I just designed some experiments where we could set up and test a number of different things that we hadn't been able to test before, especially in terms of passive remediation and things like that. What we found was that with almost 4,000 cubic yards of soil, contaminated soil, we could degrade this in 18 months, destroy more than 81% of it, set up a green zone, and actually deer grazed out here and that sort of thing. And actually, this, there was somebody living here, and the, and the town park was right here. Um, this was oil. This was not water, too. Um, I felt like wearing a full spacesuit when I was first went out there. But we set this up within just a matter of uh, three or four months and also set it up so we could test passive remediation in one section of that lagoon versus active remediation here and passive here. And we used barometric pressure changes as a passive remediation. So a ping pong ball in a little device where we could either pump allow it, the barometric pressure changes that are occurring at the surface to pump air in or out of the formation. And just setting these up in regular intervals across the field, and you saw that before. When we did active injection of air and nutrients, you can see we got much higher rates initially. Um, and we eventually got to a point where we couldn't get any more being degraded. Well, the passive was still going, but it got eventually to the same point. Um, when we added surfactants, as you'll see in a minute, we picked both of these up again, got some more degradation. But the point was that we could get to the same point without using active injection. We only needed to do this passive. So it depends on how fast you want to do it and your risk receptors, but we could get to the same point in several months as opposed to active injection. We could get there in just two or three months but it may not justify the expense. We also looked at different soluble fractions in non-aqueous phase liquids and did a simple model and, and, and predicted what we would actually see based upon um, the types of, of contaminants that were there and degradation rates and things like this. And you notice we could predict very well um, the model in blue and, and the actual um, data points from the site until we started adding the surfactant and it went down and we predicted that too. So if we added a detergent to get that um, strongly sorb material off the soil so we could degrade it, we got a lot better effect. Even though we tried several different things in here, it wasn't, it didn't, basically didn't get us any, any farther down until we added the surfactant. Biostimulation versus bioaugmentation. So this is simply biostimulation, as we've seen already, is the addition of organic or inorganic compounds to stimulate the indigenous bugs. Could be fertilizer, could be surfactants. Bioaugmentation is where we actually add the organism or biological product, okay? And a lot of companies thought, oh, well, we can patent a bug and this will be great. And what we're actually finding out is that it's not necessary, okay? In fact, it doesn't offset all the costs for making the bug. Quite often the bug dies and ends up becoming a nutrient source for the indigenous bugs, and then you can't tell whether you actually were doing biostimulation or bioaugmentation. Okay. Um, 
Biostimulation requirements. Usually we must have the correct microbes, never usually a problem. Ability to stimulate the target microbes, ability to deliver nutrients. Um, certain carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus ratios. We can use gases, we can use liquids, and we can use solids. And all of these have been tried. Um, at the Savannah River site, we had an area called the D-area oil seepage basin, where they basically dumped everything under the sun, including oil. Um, but a lot of chlorinated solvents, things like this. We put in a simple blower, trenched it in, added methane, nitrous oxide, and triethylphosphate, so we had carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus. This is a, a blower, um, really simple blower that we got from Catfish Pond Aeration Pump, okay? So we don't go very high tech, actually. And we could hook it up to a generator, okay? And in less than six months, um, this is the way it looked. And we basically had eliminated almost everything that's there. We had some trace amounts of tetrachloroethylene left. And basically, this was a feasibility study. Um, because of this, they went for a no-action um, record of decision on that site. So basically, the decision was to not to do anything because in trying out things, we cleaned up the site. Okay? So this shows some of the good things that are possible, I think. We've also tried this with landfills, and we've been able to show that at a number of landfills that you can hook up to the leachate collection system, blow in air with our little catfish pond aeration pumps, stop the production of methane, which is 20 times greater greenhouse gas than CO2 is. We immediately see the temperature go up. It basically turns into a giant compost pile. And at the sites where we've done this now, um, basically the refuge mass or the garbage is stable after two years, okay? No further problems. You could actually go back in and mine that then, take out the metals and do a variety of other things, okay? So several states have now um, picked this up and um, are starting to use it. And I actually hope that eventually this becomes the rule rather than the exception. Now, let me show you an example of injecting in a deep subsurface at DOE's Savannah River site. Uh, for size perspective, you can see this guy and this that little man is six, um, supposed to be six feet tall. This is actual data from the site. This is the groundwater table. So we're, we're showing the clipping area. This is clay lenses that are in that site. And this shows the two horizontal wells. We injected gases into this one down below the water table. We extracted gas from up above to get things moving through this area. You'll see a green zone that was the TCE contamination. And then you'll see pretty rapidly, here's this TCE. You'll see something coming up here. This is methanotrophic bacteria, methane oxidizing bacteria that can degrade TCE by just adding very small amounts of, of air with natural gas, okay? we were able to co-metabolize the TCE and completely derate it to CO2 and chloride. The purple that you see here is the excess chloride that we saw after the remediation. So you can see here simultaneously where the TCE was, the, meth the methanotrophs grew, and the chloride appeared. So we proved, in fact, it was the bugs doing this, and we got 
Um, very good result, in fact, clean that up very quickly. Bio-augmentation, okay? Uh, only advantages may be new spills or very recalcitrant things, potentially genetically modified organisms. We've never found a case where that's necessary yet, though there is potential there. We could use them in bio-barriers. Barriers. Um, Dehalococoides ethogenes is being used as a product. There's several companies that have this. This particular bug um, is very small and is injectable. Also, this is also a problem with bacteria. They're sticky, they're fairly large, they don't inject very well, okay? But this one is unusual because it's rare, and it's very small, and it's much more injectable, so we can go into TCE contaminated areas and potentially use this, and it has been used in several spots. So what we're trying to do now is look at more of a systems biology approach, okay? And trying to um, look at the network where we can connect the ecosystem, identify key factors and particular stresses that drive the community structure composition and impact survival and especially heavy metal reducers for DOE things that we're doing. Look at the community and population, understand their relationship structure and function, then go right down to the cellular and molecular level, looking at DNA, RNA, proteins, and using all of the omics, okay? Genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, and um, transcriptomics. The stressors that could be involved are things like sulfate, organics, ionic strength, oxygen, nitrate, pH, and, and EH, as we've talked about, both in the water, both survival and migration, and in the soil. The stressors in the cell, cellular level can include things like envelope modification, competence, sporulation, motility, things like this. And um, we have a variety of, of papers, review papers, that you can go look up some of this stuff on. We are also doing some new linkages between these terminal electron acceptor processes and then also the organics, the electron donors, depolymerizing for many populations volatile fatty acids and acetates, and basically trophic level interactions and networks. A lot of the problem with these sites is both biotic and abiotic in terms of sorption, um, oxidation reduction reactions, complexation, that sort of thing. And, and out in the lobby, I had a few of, of these um, booklets left on bioremediation, um, what it is and how it works, especially for metals. This was um, done by us for DOE. And if there's none left out there, you can also go to the website and download even a color version if you want, PDF. Um, we did some studies on chromium, getting into the metals in uranium, and showed that if we added organics, that in fact we could increase the biodegradation or I shouldn't say biodegradation, the bioreduction of the chromium. And we think that's probably dominated by the fact that the chrome 3 goes to chrome 2. The chrome 2 then reduces the chrome 6 to chrome 3, which precipitates. And this, of course, is um, the Aaron Brockovich um, story. Um, and in fact, uh, chrome 3 is actually used as a vitamin and is non-toxic. And part of that is because it does precipitate out, whereas chrome-6 is toxic and um, is highly mobile. So at the Hanford site, they have a big chrome plume. 
It's impacting the Columbia River, which flows into the ocean. And in fact, um, salmon um, actually breed in this area and, and have egg-laying areas called reds. And, um, and potentially that chromium is moving across the Hanford Reach like this into this area. So we've been studying in particular an area here where we've been adding nutrients. And we did a sort of integrated overall stuff, getting back to our systems biology approach with field measurements and lab measurements, geophysics, hydrogeology, um, and um, geochemistry, and even the microbiology. A very integrated approach. We used a polylactate compound. So this is a compound that potentially would hydrolyze slowly um, from this um, polymerized form to a single lactate, which then the bugs can readily use. And it would do this over a very long period of time. We convinced a company that makes this to actually make us C13-labeled lactate. Okay, um, so the stable isotope version, so we could track it. We injected 40 pounds of this in August of 2004 into one well, and then um, Susan Hubbard and um, Ken Williams and John Peterson have been doing works with the geophysics to actually track this um, in a brand new way, um, basically looking at conductivity changes. And we could basically see, after we did the injection, the HRC, see it spread out, and subsequently see a reaction that we believe is due to the formation of the precipitates. Doing all of this without doing any drilling or anything like this, basically using tomography measurements, etc. So this has been a great boon. When we did the injection, we immediately saw the biomass come up two or three orders of magnitude, okay? Um, we saw the DO drop to non-detect, and, and basically, remember, we said we needed to get the oxygen depleted. We needed to see the nitrate go away, which we did. We needed to see the iron be reduced, and we saw some sulfate reduction. So we're definitely getting the iron reduction. Subsequently, the chrome went to basically non-detect levels and has stayed there now for almost three years, okay? Which actually surprised me how stable it's been, even though we've seen oxygen come back into that area, so apparently it's forming some products that are quite stable. Mark Conrad and his group looked at the stable isotopes and looked at CO2 and dissolved inorganic carbon. And we can see that signature from the HRC, so this is definitely biological reactions. And we see that it's long-term and it's been going on now for a couple of years. And every time we pump on this area, we see some increase suggesting that there's more of that HRC compound still down there and we can actually get some of it into circulation a little bit faster. We've also been using a new 16S microarray um, to look at the species here. This is something Gary Anderson's group has developed. And basically this has 9,000, over 9,000 species on it. He has a new version coming out that has even more, and more, more than two million probes on it. With this, we can look at specific species that are present. And then on a gross level on the chip, and it's only the size of a quarter, we can see the change from injection day to 30 days later. So great increase in microbial diversity that's there and particular species that we know are involved with iron reduction, geobacter metallic reducens, 
dechlorination, sulfate reduction, and oil degradation. We can even do, see how they group together and, and see particular hierarchies and things like that. And we have some papers that, that whoops, that'll be coming out shortly. We can also take the C13, and Mark Conrad has also looked at the lipids that are in the cell wall that we isolate from this, not culturing anything. And we can see, in fact, how certain species are taking up that material and putting this into their lipids so that we see this shift in the C13 ratio, suggesting then, in fact, that, that there's this sort of thing going on. We also saw the flavobacteria did not do this shift, and that's sort of interesting because they do not use lactate. They're aerobic, and, and what do you know, we had a great control because they did go up. Come to find out there's a little bit of glycerol in this polylactate, and so that is apparently what they were living on, and that's why we saw that increase in the flavobacteria, flavobacteria AC group. We've also gone right down to the molecular level, and they're looking at chromium um, responses in desulfuryl vulgaris as part of our bigger project and looking at specific proteins that are involved in transcription changes. And there's a number of papers that we've had come out on this. So again, going right down to that molecular level. At Oak Ridge National Laboratory, we've been looking at, at some uranium-contaminated sites there, doing a number of things there. Um, basically, this is the way it looked when they were dumping uranium and nitric acid out there, lots of nitrate, as much as, as 20,000 parts per million, okay? Extremely high levels, and uranium is also quite high. Way too much information here, but this shows some of the things that we're able to do with clone libraries. Um, we're able to have developed techniques where we can actually see as few as five cells in a sample, okay? and then um, amplify that DNA. That allows us to do these trees, which you can't read here, but um, I'd be happy to give you papers and, and, and this presentation later. And you can see all the details of what species are out there. And this was published um, just this last year in Applied Environmental Microbiology. We've also done metagenomic studies with AGI. And this is in the groundwater. What I just showed you was in the sediment. Completely different view here. We see basically everything dominated by this one unknown organism with a few other species there. It goes to show that we can't monitor just the sediment in the water. We had to monitor both, okay? Because what's in the water may be the slough-offs, okay? Not what's attached in the sediment community. Phylogenetic trees, um, we can look at um, basically what other people have found at that site, look at um, our metagenome analysis from JGI, and Owen Brody has identified some stuff in GenBank, and you can see it matches up with some of the stuff that's, some of the genes that are found there, and species. The chip also shows some problems, okay? The metagenomic and clone libraries are dominated by the dominant organism in the sample. They only show um, 6 to 20% or more of what is actually the phylochip sees. The phylochip sees everything, so it detects about 80% more. So 
what do you use? Okay, this gets to be a problem. Um, we've used this in uranium studies here that Tetsu Tokunaga, Mary Firestone, and Owen Brody and Jim and Juan have done with myself. And we've actually shown that if you add some to a soil column, get rid of the, the nitrate by adding enough organic, and we've added lactate and various other organics, you see the uranium um, six concentration go way down. So all that soluble uranium goes way down. And then about here, after 100 days or so, it gets to very low levels. And this is where most of the students would go home and write their thesis. But something happened here, OK? It reoxidized. Come to find out this was a real process that we repeated. And it's due to anaerobic reoxidation, potentially carbonates being formed, that then can link up with the uranium-4 and reoxidize it back to uranium-6 and allow it to be released. Potential problem, OK? Not something DOE wanted to hear, OK? But there may be some other ways to control that, and we're looking at that now. This just gives you an idea of what we can do in terms of the phylochip again and looking at what species are present, how that changed, and prove that, in fact, it wasn't due to a loss of a particular species. The uranium reducers were there. They came up and they stayed there. There may have been some syntrophy going on, and the sulfate reducers may have been important. Now, just to finish up, DOE also dragged me into when we did Poland to look at lead in phytoremediation. Not one of my favorite types of remediation. But phytoremediation um, does have the potential for cleaning up environments, but it has potentially a fatal flaw. So we went into an area that had lead contamination from the Polish Army and Soviet Army training grounds, and we planted mustard plants. This is what it looked like before in this large area, and this is what it looked like after. Well, you know, we saw some pretty significant decreases, but there's still quite a bit there. What we did is put the lead then into plants, which made it more bioavailable and a greater risk, okay? And then what do you do with the plants afterwards, okay? So you created a bigger plume. The, maybe the best thing to do is to have left it alone, okay, and left it there or use some sort of containment technique. Because then we didn't know what to do with the lead contaminated um, vegetation. And in fact, in the States, we have very few incinerators that will take um, either heavy metal or radionuclide contaminated material. And there's currently none functioning across the United States that, that will take that material. Phytoremation sounds great. It's got a really significant fatal flaw. Okay, summary. Bioremediation holds a great promise for remediation of some of our worst problems. It certainly could be good, and I've showed you solvents, oil, lead, uranium, and chromium. Critical biogeochemical characteristics, sensitivity, specificity, quantification, sorption, reoxidation, re re etc. That's the bad, okay? These are really critical things. Phytoremediation, looking at Life cycle costs and all risk involves, um, especially as fatal flaws, that's sort of the ugly, okay, part of the whole thing. Biomobilization or getting that material out 
And a systems biology approach may be one of the only ways that we can really enable sustainable environmental biotechnology applications, okay? To that end, the Virtual Institute for Microbial Stress and Survival, we're doing environmental monitoring, microbial isolation, um, in situ physiology, imaging, DNA microarrays, proteomics, metabolomics, comparative genomics, um, pathway inferences and models, pathway models, finally cell and environmental models and linking that back to the environment and seeing where we can go with that and make really biosustainable types of applications. Understand the mechanisms, elucidate how we can carry out mission critical processes, in this case environmental bioremediation. This clearly was not done just by me. Lots of people involved, lots of different agencies, DOE Genomics GTL, Environmental Remediation Sciences Program, and NASA. This is just some of the institutions involved. And I'll stop there. Sorry, I'm running a little bit long. <laughs>